Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a veteran war reporter just back from a month in Ukraine who has a long perspective on Putin's wars having covered Chechnya in the 1990s. Joining us is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. We'll discuss the alliance the Petro states, Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE have with Trump, and how the war in Ukraine has benefited them, as well as Putin's continuing influence with the rabid right of the GOP, who are working to cut off US funds to Ukraine. Then with Qatar helping Iranian government thugs stifle dissent at the World Cup, we'll get an update on the revolution underway in Iran led by brave young women. Joining us is Tara Kangaloo, who is an award-winning journalist who has produced and reported for NBC, CNN and Al Jazeera America, as well as many digital news outlets. She was the recipient of the Ted Sorensen Award from Network 2020 for her impact journalism and humanitarian work in conflict zones. She founded Art of Hope, the first American nonprofit with the sole mission of supporting psychosocial and mental health needs of war-torn refugees. Born and raised in Tehran and based in London, she is currently a professor at Georgetown University and the author of The Heartbeat of Iran, Real Voices of a Country and Its People. Then finally, since young and minority voters helped hold the line against the recent Republican red wave, we will look into strategies progressives can build on to mobilize a Democratic majority in 2024. Joining us is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Robert Young Pelton, an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He's the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, License to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurist. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Young Pelton. Hi, Ian. How are you doing? I'm good. And you just got back a couple of days ago from a month in Ukraine where you drove from Krakow, Poland, then to Kiev, down to Odessa, Kherson, Mikhailiv, Bakhmut, uh, then up to Kharkiv, and then you went to the recently liberated towns in the north, and you were filming for a group called 
Operation White Stalk dot org delivering supplies to the frontline fighters and also interviewed Americans who were there fighting as volunteers etc so let's begin with tell us about Operation White Stork uh, well Operation White Stork is a friend of mine William McNulty who's a former Marine uh, he's probably best known for creating uh, Team Rubicon and Team Rubicon is, is a well-known NGO that responds to disasters in the states and overseas as well and he goes out of his way to bring in uh, veterans uh, combat veterans some of them with PTSDs people that just want to get involved as well as civilians and it, and it grew very quickly to a very large NGO and and uh, he moved on from there and he wanted to start something new and then the war started and uh, suddenly he just jumped in with both feet so it's a great story. It's about a, a guy with passion who wants to help people, and he's basically building an airplane in flight, and that's why I decided to you know, hang out with him and his people for a month. It was a fantastic experience. So you also interviewed a, a lot of Americans. So what's going on there in terms of these freelancers that are going over? I take it the, people, the Operation White Stalk people are non-combatants, but you interviewed combatants, oh, right? Yeah, I mean, let's be clear. Operation White Sword delivers uh, humanitarian and uh, first aid kits, things like that. They're not involved in combat or any type of, uh, you know, bellicose action. But uh, Ukraine is a is a free for all, and and as you know, Ian, I've been in many, 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 many wars, and I've seen the tone, and seen how they're conducted. And I have to say. This is like Woodstock. This is like a, a concert where everybody's coming to do their thing, whether it be humanitarian, military, uh, just everybody's trying to help. And I, and I think the, the tonality of this war, which is the, you know, the David versus Goliath aspect and the good versus bad, has, has really resonated with a lot of Americans. So I talked to a lot of people ranging from people who fed cats to people who wanted to do uh, lobbying to people that just wanted to help, just wanted to go up there and help bring people out or fix up rubble or whatever. And the other thing that's really unique about this war is the Ukrainians are uh, very fastidious people. And that sounds kind of silly, but, you know, when I was in the cities and rockets and missiles would come in, you'd see the destruction they create. And then you'd see these people with little uh, brooms whisking away all the broken glass. And then by the end of the day, the pothole in the street would be fixed. And everybody would be going about their business as if nothing happened. And that's a truly remarkable scene. So in terms of the American volunteers that are over there fighting, including Malcolm Nance, by the way, right? <laughs> so he's, he's not exactly a young man. So are they sort of redeeming themselves from the terrible American wars of Iraq and Afghanistan? Is this a much more simpler for them in terms of good versus you know, evil? You make a good point, because one of the things that I picked up in interviewing these people is, is a sense of purpose, right? A sense of devoting their skills and their energies to something that they felt was morally sound and correct. And, and of course, being supported and, and cheered on by the Ukrainian people. So uh, when people like Malcolm Nance, who I think is in his 60s, and I've known Malcolm for many, many years back when we used to train Navy SEALs, um, when he says, you know, screw it, I'm off to fight the wars, you know, he's welcomed. It's most people would just send you home and say, here, <laughs> thanks for helping. But 
so you see a lot of people. I mean, there there are rogue teams of Navy SEALs out there. They're not official, but they're operating with all the gear, and you know they're killing Russians. And and, and again, keep in mind, historically, America has been waiting to fight this war for almost seventy years, ever since Patton got mad. Old Eisenhower, we should keep going. But um, historically, this is America's war. So Putin, of course, just recently met with the mothers of uh, the fallen and said he feels their pain. But it's pretty clear, isn't it, that the Russians, and particularly Putin, does not care about how many of his own people die. He's just throwing kids into the meat grinder, isn't he? Yeah, and remember, I was in Grozny and I was in Chechnya in 1999 and 2000, and I saw firsthand Putin's first war. Uh, you know, it began with a sense of trickery with the apartment bombings, and then it ended with completely flattening the the buildings and infrastructure of Chechnya, and then ended up with the execution and imprisoning of most of the people that wanted to be free from Russia, even though at that time Chechnya was a free country. So you're not talking about a military guy. You know, Putin is not a general. He's a, he's an intel guy. So he works on the minds and hearts of people. And he also has zero problem sacrificing Russian lives. And this, you know, historically, this has been Russian's trademark of mass attacks, mass deaths, whether it's from starvation or gulags or whatever. So we have to be careful not to view him as a, an equal opponent, as somebody who you know draws a line on the battlefield and agrees to truces and whatever. He, he feels he's in an existential fight to preserve Russia. And to preserve himself more than anything, right? It's his war. Yeah, and this is, you know, the Russian people really see a different view of the war than we do. Uh, you know, I have a an iPhone and I put in different SIM cards as I travel around and I go on TikTok and I'm blown away by the difference of content that you see when, let's say you're in Serbia or Hungary, you're seeing nothing but cool videos and Russia's winning, et cetera, et cetera. You slap in your uh, Ukrainian one, you see nothing but, you know, victorious Ukrainian soldiers. There's a huge psyops program to convince the Russian people that, that they're winning. And in actual fact, they're not because, you know, their their economy is cratering and their sort of existence in the world is being marginalized. But I don't think the Russian people have a choice under Putin. And what's happening on the Ukrainian side? We know that the Russians are suffering huge casualties, at least 100,000 dead. On the Ukrainian side, do you get any sense of what the ratio is? Because they're, they obviously have a much smaller population base. Yeah, now keep in mind, and, and people forget this a lot, uh, when you're on the front lines and you're talking to a fighter, you know, he was an accountant uh, a few months ago, right? And he turns to your right, and that guy used to be a baker. You know, it, it's a volunteer war on the Ukraine side. And, and yes, they have a military, and yes, they have implements and tools, but you're talking about Russian conscripts fighting against Ukrainians. I mean, they, they have a uniform, but it's their home. Uh, the casualty rates are quite high on both sides. I, I was not able to get an official number from Ukraine because they keep it secret. But, you know, I saw one of the trains show up uh, and it comes in completely dark. The ambulances are waiting for the bodies and the wounded. So they keep their wounded, you know, buttoned up. Uh, in an attritional war, the best I could figure out is like a three to one ratio. But again, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on this and, and we'll never get to the bottom of this. But I do know, I do know from combat that the Russians are dying in large numbers because of their tactics. 
um, you know, a lot of these conscripts and a lot of these new recruits from prisons and Wagner mercenaries are literally sent out in mass charges. And the Ukrainians that I was with that were killing them were, you know, they just felt bad because this was their tactic of using mass waves. They called it a meat wall. And uh, they don't understand, but they don't have a choice. They have to kill these people or else not survive. So there is a high attrition rate, KIA rate, on the Russian side as well. But again, it doesn't seem to bother Putin. And as you pointed out earlier, when you covered the wars in Chechnya, he started the wars by blowing up apartment buildings on the outskirts of Moscow, killing up to 300 of his own citizens. So I've always been astounded that from day one, people didn't recognize who this man really is. And it's taken decades for people to realize who he really is. So is there any sense that... Let me tell you a quick story. So... When I was in Chechnya, I was picked up by one of bin Laden's guys and taken to an underground bunker, and I interviewed a guy named Alexei Galkin. If you Google him, you'll see who he is. He's a GRU agent that was caught in uh, Chechnya, and he told me the stories of the apartment bombings and what they're doing. And when I told the story later, um, people said, oh, you're trying to tell me that Putin would kill his own people by putting a bomb in the basement? I said, well, I was in a building full of Russian pensioners, blind pensioners, who were being killed by Russian bombs from the top. So I I don't understand why you find it so hard to understand Putin's methods. So, you know, I'm I'm a cynical seasoned vet of combat. I I don't see that Putin would even stop with nukes. Well, he's been threatening to do something uh, with dirty bombs, and the fear is that the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant that he controls, it's in Russian-controlled territory. The eight reactors are all being shut down, but it still takes forever to cool them, and they need the electrical supply in order to, to keep the water circulating to cool them, and then they've got backup diesel generators, and sometimes the, the Russians cut off the electricity, and they even stop the diesel f- uh, f- from coming in. So what the hell is going on there? Well, remember, we talked about the apartment bombings ruse in Chechnya. One of the ruses that uh, Putin used, in addition to the you know bio labs that he had to shut down, was that the Ukrainians were going to detonate a dirty bomb. And, and a lot of people confuse that with using nuclear weapons. So a, a dirty bomb is a traditional explosive device that's filled full of nuclear waste. So it creates a, a dead zone. And uh, my friends who work in intelligence and, you know, in the military were also warning me before I went over saying, you know, we're getting really credible back and forth communications about a dirty bomb, which and what that would mean is is called a denied zone that Putin in their minds, or at least in the intelligence, was going to create a dead zone between the areas that he had seized and the rest of Ukraine, except, you know, weather doesn't favor that idea. So. Uh, it's a very electric idea. Same with the bomb in, you know, Kursan. They were going to blow up the dam and drown everybody. Um, when you're inside the Ukraine, when you're trying to figure out what's real and not real, it's very difficult because of this huge psyops program. Sure, but you were saying earlier that you you got a sense of the Ukrainian people and elaborate on it further. Well, you know, I'm Canadian from Edmonton, and we had a lot of Ukrainians there, and. Uh, they're known as tough people. I mean, and so are Russians, but they're known to just get on with things. And one of the things that, that kind of blew me away was I was with the head of the post office and the head of the railroad is that they were young 
people, actually the head of the post office in American, and they were seizing on the fact that they were faster, smarter. And you remember those postal stamps that came out after Snake Island and after the, the bridge was blown up? The, the head of the post office is giggling that he can come out with a funny, you know, sort of screw you stamp and get it printed and sold on eBay within a, or Amazon, sorry, within about uh, six weeks and make money off of it. So the Ukrainians are incredibly enterprising. And I was with a unit that uses uh, consumer drones, you know, the DJI uh, drones that we use for filming. And they were using a plastic printer to make uh, fins and veins for grenades. And they had the detachment system. And they were going out and looking for tanks and dropping these grenades and EFPs on them, uh, which is an incredibly asymmetric way to, uh, to fight a war. So innovation was really uh, throughout the whole place and a really good sense of energy, um, you know, the sense that they're winning. Now, on the other side, it's, it's almost like being back in World War I. You're, you're sitting in trenches. There's about five front lines. So there's the zero line where they shoot at each other. And then there's one, two, three, four, five, about one to two kilometers uh, spaced apart. And they have bunkers with persistent surveillance with drones. Uh, they have flat screen TVs and radios. Uh, they use signal to pick up and distribute targets. So when somebody sees a tank, he puts it on signal. Somebody picks up the target and say, got it. Um, it's a really neat sort of swarm network centric uh, view of war. And I'm sure it'll be the subject of many, many papers and books after the war's over. Mm. Well, you know that um, the Russians were really counting on the Republicans winning big in the midterms, and Russian media was all over the red wave, um, expecting it to happen. But it's clear that the Russians have always wanted Trump. They helped him in 2016, and then that was largely about Ukraine, because uh, that's what Manafort and company were all about. So that continues. So do you think that there's any way that Putin can get his caucus here in the Republican Party, the Marjorie Taylor Greens, and that crowd that want to cut funds for Ukraine. Is that going to happen? Do the, are the Ukrainians concerned about it? Because a lot of well, arguments on the American side is that we're giving away our good equipment. Well, you were there. Apparently the stuff that we're giving the Ukrainians is like 1990 technology, the really good stuff that the U.S. has and NATO has has not been deployed yet. Correct. And, and uh, let me just say one thing that I did learn when I got back was, you know, the Trump administration started with Ukraine, with Manafort and sort of a sense of like what's going on here? Why? How do things work? And if you do any historical reading on the Ukrainian uh, invasion and, and the election and how the whole Russian uh, invasion started, which, you know, like you say, began in 2014, you see a very insidious form of autocracy. And it's not just on the battlefield, it's in the hearts and minds of Americans, where there's a constant pressure inside, and I'll say inside the GOP, I won't say inside the Democratic Party, to legitimize Russia and Putin and, and what they're doing, and the idea that autocracy is required, and and that uh, Ukraine's a welfare state, et cetera, et cetera. These are all fictional narratives that are being pushed into the political process. And when I see specific regional politicians that belong to the GOP suddenly drilling down on Ukraine, I'm thinking, why, why do you even care? What do you even know? You, you know, you haven't been there. You don't understand. And I can tell you from being in Ukraine that the equipment we're selling them, the sending them, high Mars, all these things, these were the tools that we designed to fight the Russians. You know, we used them in Iraq, we used them in Afghanistan, but 
they're long-range artillery systems that are designed to, you know, attrit tanks and, and fortified positions. So we've only sent a handful of those things. I mean, I don't know the numbers, but if you look at the total number of HIMARS in our inventory versus what we sent over, it's, it's minuscule. It's, it's not even 10%. So the bottom line is that there is something going on in the GOP narrative that's not right. It's, it's not healthy. It's not linked to anything American. But it is Putin's back door. If he can get America to stop supporting Ukraine, then he has won that war. It's, it's that serious. But there's also the petro-state dimension, isn't there? I mean, there's a, almost a de facto alliance between Putin and Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia, who make up OPEC+. And, you know, we saw recently how MBS essentially sided with Putin and stiffed uh, Joe Biden in spite of the fist bump. So isn't that a big dimension that the Saudis, the Emiratis and Putin are all in it together? They just want to sell as much oil as they can for as long as they can, and they want the price to be as high as they can. And this war has driven up the price of oil. So is that a bonus on Putin's part, or was that a part of the calculus? I think you're acting rather casually because you remember the last time on my show I told you about the 1922 project, which is a very specific plan to remove the U.S. from its dominance in the oil markets and also in the human rights and sanctions and things like that. And there's a very good reason why Putin invaded Ukraine in February, because Donald Trump wasn't the president and he had no no allies in the U.S. And he decided to destabilize the global economy. And that that also includes... Uh, maintaining high oil prices, which then allows the, call them what you want, the petro dictators, the oil barons to carry out their operations with plenty of profits. They destabilize the economic and and food markets. Uh, They also depressed a lot of the regions in the world, which allows them to invest. So uh, without going into a conspiracy theory, there is an actual memo called the 1922 memo, which was written by Tanun Al-Zayan, Al-Nahan, who is the uh, head of intel for the UAE, and it specifically addresses 44 countries and how to control their leadership and their economy. So, yes, the, the war in Ukraine is sort of Putin saying to the Gulf dictators, you know, hold my beer. Let me show you how to disrupt the global economy. So does Putin think he's going to win? Does he think that the American right that supports him is going to make a comeback? Well, here's the good news. So Putin's not a military guy. He's surrounded by toadies and oligarchs, and they're all telling him, let's go, let's do this. We can take Ukraine in you know, three weeks, four weeks, whatever Hitlerian uh, narrative they gave him. And, and Russia's army is designed specifically to roll over flat farmland. So uh, when he didn't win, China and India, who were sending on the sidelines like a car crash, were like, whoa, 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 wait, 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 this is not good. You're going to destabilize the economy which is ultimately going to depress oil prices and cause all kinds of problems. And Putin screwed up. So we're seeing him trying to recover from a fumble that I don't think he's going to recover from. And and I wish that people would look at this in much bigger terms because it's a war on us. When we put our, you know, we drive in to fill up our car with gas or we buy food at the grocery store. This is a direct result of the, the Gulf and the Russian leaders destabilizing our economy. We were supposed to come out of COVID, you know, roaring with all kinds of spare cash and doing all kinds of things worldwide, and that got nipped in the bud. So it is a global 
shift and it, the new world order is, is overused a lot, but the idea was to push us out of dominance in the new world order. And Putin has made speeches to this effect, you know, talking about the uh, unipolar society and how other people need to run the, the world. So it's all right. out there. And the golden billionaires controlling the world. Yes. <laughs> so, but this why... is all real. This, this isn't some, some mega QAnon you know, concept. This is stated public policy of both Xi in China and also Putin in Russia and also of the Gulf dictators. They right. don't want America preaching to them and controlling the oil markets or the dollar out there. Right. But, but why doesn't Biden and the Democrats, why don't they make the argument that you're, you're making that this is a war against us, it's against the consumer in the United States who's worried about inflation because of the price of gas and the price of food is directly related, and there's a strategy behind well, that. Well, don't forget, what? part of this is to weaken Biden. Part of destroying the American economy is to make Biden look weak. And, and after, after they viewed the retreat from Afghanistan and, and Biden's political numbers, they figured he was weak. He wouldn't respond quickly or, or with force against them in Ukraine. And China was watching this with Taiwan as well. But he did. And that's the funny thing is that Biden, it seems to be a very quiet politician. He's not making speeches and threatening people. He's actually doing things like sanctions and sending weapons. And these have real results against Putin and also eventually the Gulf dictatorship. So I, I'm not a politician. I, I can just say that Biden has really set Putin back. But when the GOP gets in, they're going to work very hard to undermine, you know, the support for Ukraine, which then benefits Putin and the Gulf uh, regions. Just in the last minute, are the Europeans, if America falls, the Europeans will fall too? Well, it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's talk about unipolar. They're talking about the U.S.-European alliance, which they call NATO. That's their enemy. You know, uh, when we use NATO in Afghanistan, they felt that was overreach and they saw that as a threat. So they feel like, let's push back NATO, put them back in the box, and we'll show them who's the real world power. That didn't happen. And, and so it's still, you know, the next six months to a year will be very, very instructive on where we're going in terms of whether we have a unipolar or multipolar world. Well, uh, Robert Young Pelton, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it very much. It's always a pleasure, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Robert Young Pelton, who's an author, filmmaker, journalist, and explorer. He is the publisher of Dangerous Magazine and has had a first-hand perspective on the war on terror from direct contact with the world's most infamous jihadi, rebel, and insurgent groups. His books include The World's Most Dangerous Places, Come Back Alive, Three Worlds Gone Mad, Licensed to Kill, Hired Guns in the War on Terror, and his autobiography, The Adventurous. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update on the revolution underway in Iran, led by brave young women. I met a young woman whose body was burning. I met a young girl, she gave me rainbow. I met one man who was wounded in love. I met another man who was wounded in hatred And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard It's hard, it's hard rains are gonna fall 
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Tara Kungalu, who is an award-winning journalist who has produced and reported for NBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera America, as well as many digital news outlets. She was the recipient of the Ted Sorensen Award for Network 2020 for her impact journalism and humanitarian work in conflict zones. She founded Art of Hope, the first American nonprofit with the sole mission of supporting the psychosocial and mental health needs of war-torn refugees. And she was born and raised in Tehran and is currently based in London. And she's at the moment a professor at Georgetown University and the author of The Heartbeat of Iran, Real Voices of a Country and Its People. Welcome to Background Briefing, Tara Kangaloo. Thank you so much for having me, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Tara. And obviously, there's a revolution underway in Iran, led by very, very brave young women. And to some extent, it manifested, at least the issue was manifested at the World Cup, initially with the Iranian team refusing to sing the national anthem. And then in the subsequent games, I guess they're probably IRG people, the Revolutionary Guard Corps people, but they have been harassing pro-democracy demonstrators at the World Cup itself. It seems Mm. as though the Guthrie authorities are siding with the Iranian government thugs. I mean, I saw Mm. footage of a a young woman wearing the T-shirt emblazoned Mm. with woman life freedom being prevented from entering the stands. So... Mm. What's the relationship then between Qatar and uh, Iran, given that these Gulf states tend to be enemies of Iran, but in this case, they seem to be cooperating. Uh, I think that's an interesting question. Um, It's important for us to uh, look at the relation of Qatar and Iran over the last couple of years. And uh, if you compare it to uh, the rest of the GCC, uh, you know, Qatar has been, in fact, the closest to Iran. You know, they don't necessarily share the same rival rivalry and uh, uh, blatant uh, animosity that uh, exists between Saudi Arabia and Iran. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, we, we should remember how uh, Saudi uh, put a blockade over Qatar, um, isolated the country, uh, and and that in many ways um, uh, created this uh, this closeness with Iran between Qatar and Iran. And so it's only natural that um, uh, Iran would use its uh, relations, however you know, however whatever the extent of that is, with Qatar uh, to push its own agenda right now um, in the World Cup. So um, the relationship that Qatar has with Iran is very different than the relationship that Saudi Arabia uh, has with the country, um, and, uh, and that's something that uh, Iran Iranian regime is taking advantage of right now. And as you mentioned, yes, um, uh, spectators have been harassed. Uh, women have been, um, in many ways, asked to uh, put their uh, clothing items that show any uh, sign of defiance. Uh, you know, away and not enter the stadium. Um, and, and, you know, that's, again, reflective of the, uh, the severe sort of censorship that um, those in charge have. Um, and again, I, I think FIFA in many ways could have been a bit more supportive, um, uh, you know, allowing players to show uh, defiance in various ways. I mean, our you know, European players can't even wear, you know, uh, uh, bands to, to, perhaps show uh, their support for one of the most basic uh, 
uh, rights um, in, in our world, you know, the LGBTQ community. So um, in many ways, I think players uh, have a very limited uh, space to, to show whatever uh, defiance it is that they want to show. But at the same time, um, uh, fans and viewers are also very limited in what they can do and not. And that, again, is reflective of the restrictive policies that are in place in Qatar. Um, and, and some, of course, are influenced in the case of Iran by the Iranian regime. Uh, but back to the players briefly, because you mentioned that um, you know, the Iranian uh, national team, uh, you know, folks have to understand the, the tremendous pressure they're, they're under. I mean, a source in Iran uh, actually yesterday very close to the national team told me that every single player has been threatened and required a, a written guarantee that they don't say a thing and keep quiet, right? And, I, and if you, uh, you know, recall the first game they had, they, they all refused to sing the national anthem and they didn't show uh, any, any sign of joy and excitement after scoring their goals and and um, that was a show of defiance I mean what else what else can they do um, but but then uh, you saw uh, one of the former national team players Boya uh, Kafuri being arrested in Iran and um, many believe uh, that including myself that that was a, a very strong sign that the regime said you know what we arrested one of you guys um, and, we, and we can do more so you better sing that national anthem and, and if you paid attention to how these young boys sang the national anthem I mean <laughs> they, 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 they rather been doing anything else than, than doing that so um, I think you know it was it was very much forced and and, um, you know, unfortunately, uh, so many people have, have been uh, trying to take advantage of the situation. But at its core, uh, these young men are part of the Iranian society. Um, they work so hard to be where they are. They play for the people. And um, they are under severe pressure, severe pressure. And, um, and, and uh, I, you know, I'm curious to see what unfolds in the, in the coming game uh, on Tuesday between the United States and Iran. So let's talk about this incredibly unpopular government that is so vicious and venal towards its own people and and the supreme leader, Khamenei, just uh, praised the Bashij militia, part of the IRGC, for their brutality and treat, suggested somehow that they were the victims and against these demonstrators who Khamenei described as uh, rioters and thugs. So... Mm-hmm. Has it always been a minority of, I mean, it's basically a kleptocracy, isn't it? A bunch of kleptocrats mm-hmm. in religious robes that use the IRGC as their their kind of protection racket. And I'm interested in getting a sense of what the ratio is between ordinary Iranians who want freedom and democracy and who hate this kleptocracy and the kind of support mm-hmm. that this regime has in, within the country? Mm-hmm. Do you have any figures on that? Uh, that's a great question. I actually written a piece for Time magazine on this and essentially taking readers into the hearts and minds of the Basij forces. And Ian, if you, uh, if you look at the Iranian society um, uh, and, and, and uh, you know, get to really understand it, you'd realize that uh, the, the ratio between diehard revolutionaries, individuals who support the regime versus ordinary Iranians like you and I, you know, who, who want to belong to the international community, who want to, to, uh, to thrive, to have some of the basic 
uh, you know, human rights and freedom of choice in life uh, are quite staggering. So uh, the ratio, of course, while they're not exact numbers and data, uh, it, it's very evident that it is uh, very stark, meaning that you have a country of uh, almost 84 million, 83 million individuals. And of this, uh, you have a small minority who are diehard revolutionaries, besiege forces, and really part of the regime apparatus. And the numbers can be, you know, anywhere between 8 million to 10 million people. And and let's, you know, even take that 8 million. Um, this is what I, what I wrote based on my extensive reporting on the topic, and, and which is, you know, even if you take that eight to ten million uh, people, or individuals who are in support of the regime, you can divide that by in half because uh, it's it's fascinating that the support for the Iranian regime uh, comes in twofold in many ways. Half are again die-hard revolutionaries, ideologues, individuals who truly have been brainwashed, and individuals who truly believe that their existence is defined in uh, defined in the the Islamic. Uh, regime in in the Ayatollah in the Velayat of Faqih in 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 the existence of this uh, of the system, right? But then the second half are are people who have made a very lucrative life by way of this regime, you know, financially, politically, that they have gained a lot of strength, a lot of uh, money, a lot of influence and power, and so. You know, they don't necessarily share the ideology, right? But they play along. You know, they dance to the tune. And, and, and um, you know, at any more moment, they're the ones who may change gears and channels. But, but for now, they're severely embedded and in, invested in this regime because they feed off of it, right? But I think the most dangerous, uh, well, I guess both are, but, uh, but, 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 but the group that, are, that is severely uh, brainwashed and ideologically charged are perhaps those who will fight until the end, right? Because they're trained to 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 fight for the system. They're trained to believe that there's nothing more righteous than than the words that come out of you know the supreme leader's mouth. And and those are the people who who we see on the streets killing, arresting, and and in many ways um, choking. Uh, ordinary people's voice, uh, you know, uh, right now, as, as you mentioned earlier, that the that the, the Iranian regime blames the West and, you know, essentially victimizes itself against the very valid voices of the people who have been, you know, taking the streets, demanding change and demanding their rights. But you know what? I think the, the hypocrisy of that is so evident in their actions. I mean, why do we have children... Uh, detained? Why do we have children killed? Why do we have journalists uh, who were just simply doing their job reporting on the death of, of this young woman, Mahsa Jina Amini? Why are they in prison? Uh, why are there ordinary people, ordinary citizens, uh, peaceful protesters in prison? Why do we see individuals killed across Iran, across the nation in different cities? Why do we see that? I mean, that, then that's, that's the hypocrisy of it all. Um, and so I think uh, they can't play that game, um, but they, they, again, they have always uh, tried to play the victim mentality and then, you know, uh, projecting that they're uh, in the right and, and, and the nation and Western powers are in the wrong. And, and, but that doesn't sell anymore. And, and I think mm. it's very clear right now. But can they kill their way and stay in power? That seems to be their only option because uh, my understanding is that the demonstrators are pervasive, they're very young, they're 
organized, they're very clever, they go to the homes of IRGC members and besieged members and talk to the parents and try to dissuade them. And I'm sure that's why Hamani made that speech to the besieged, you know, praising them and accusing the demonstrators of being rioters and thugs in the pay of foreign powers. I think uh, the Iranian government, the regime has seen uh, in many ways uh, that they're scared. Okay, they are scared. This time it is different. It's, we're now 10 weeks, two months into the protests, and um, people are not going anywhere. You know, their voices are not uh, subsiding and they're pushing. Now, the more vicious and brutal the regime is, the more telling of, of their fear, right, and, and the weakness they fear. Um, and, and, and the position of vulnerability they're in. Uh, there have been reports, uh, credible reports, coming out of Iran saying that the regime uh, has been reaching out to, uh, quote-unquote, reformist and moderate voices, right, that were uh, part of the government at some point, wanting to talk to them and wanting to ask them for help, you know, in, in, in quieting uh, dissent and quieting the people. Uh, but those voices... Uh, did, did not respond. You know, pretty much they were like, "You're on your own." You know, we're not gonna, we're not gonna ask the people to, to uh, uh, quiet down. Um, and, and again, that just reflects that this very radical, hardline regime is isolated in in many ways, um, and that would only embolden them to uh, harshen their crackdown again, as, as we are continuing to see. Now, I believe that. Uh, the more the international community um, supports the voices of ordinary Iranians coming out of Iran, the more they amplify the voices and, and asks of the Iranian people and, and further isolate the regime. I think that that is a chance that uh, people would see resolve and, and uh, some result that they want. And, um, and I think that's where we are. We need to amplify the voices inside the country and, and in, in ways uh, isolate the regime. I think the, the European Parliament was very courageous um, uh, and, uh, and, and wise in uh, pretty much announcing the severance of any relations with uh, the Iranian government. Uh, this just happened a few days ago. And I think that's just one step in further isolating this regime. So just in closing, the real power behind the scenes, which is the son of Hamani, Moshtaba Hamani, uh, who's high up in the IRGC, who's apparently running the place, he doesn't have the religious credentials, not that his father does in particular. Is there any way that the passing of Hamani will make a difference here? I think really it's... You know, this is not really about religious uh, autonomy, or I think it's, it's all about yeah. power and influence and money. I mean, the IRGC is one of the wealthiest um, entities in Iran. You know, they have influence and power in every single industry that you can imagine, from oil and gas to all the conglomerates. They they pretty much own everything. And you have to, you know, it's, it's, people don't don't see this. I mean, the sanctions uh, that have been imposed on Iran over the years, uh, for example, have only uh, emboldened the IRGC. They've only made them, um, uh, you know, their businesses more lucrative, created more black market uh, spaces for them to operate in and and unfortunately weakened the ordinary uh, Iranians and it would be the economy. 
I say this just to emphasize on the fact that uh, on, on the, the influence that the IRGC have. You know, they have their own uh, paramilitary, um, uh, airspace, uh, naval, intelligence, and foreign forces, right? So this is not uh, really about religion and, and religious influence. In fact, in fact, uh, there was... Um, a statement uh, from uh, from one of the I mean he he he, he passed uh, quite a few years ago uh, but um, from his office a statement t- talking about you know essentially calling religious figures Rohanion uh, the clerics to come together in support of the people and and denouncing the brutal crackdown against the people but um, but but of course uh, we haven't seen any strong sentiments or or. Uh, you know, call to action from the clerics. Now, um, that's yet to be seen. But but after Khamenei's passing, there's no doubt that there's going to be a little bit of a chaos in you know who who takes over. Uh, uh, but 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 in reality, um, the IRGC holds so much power, and also there's a lot of um, divide even within the system, even within the IRGC, and even within you know the, the governing forces. Um, so it's a very complicated. Uh, space, uh, but that doesn't mean that um, those in power will not do everything they can uh, to hold on and, and clinch on to, to the power until the last breath, and they will. Well, Tarek Angalou, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Tarek Angalou, who is a award-winning journalist who has produced and reported for NBC, CNN, and Al Jazeera America, as well as many digital news outlets. She was the recipient of the Ted Sorensen Award for Network 2020 for her impact journalism and humanitarian work in conflict zones. She founded Art of Hope, the first American nonprofit with the sole mission of supporting the psychosocial and mental health needs of war-torn refugees. She was born and raised in Tehran and is currently based in London and is now a professor at Georgetown University and is the author of The Heartbeat of Iran, Real Voices of a Country and Its People. We can take a brief station break and back looking into how young and minority voters helped hold the line against the recent Republican red wave and what strategies progressives can build on to mobilize a Democratic majority in 2024. <laughs> Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's a former managing editor of Ramparts, was a co-founder of Mother Jones magazine, and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. His books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Richard Parker. Good to be with you, Ian, and happy Thanksgiving. And happy Thanksgiving to you, Richard, and I I did a Thanksgiving program where I tried to be optimistic and talk about what we can be thankful for and should be thankful for, but it didn't actually t- turn out to be that optimistic. Uh, I guess realism, or reality bites, as they say. Do you have any 
optimistic thoughts before we, we begin discussing the issues that I was, want to talk to you about? Well, I mean, yeah, sure. And I mean, I think I think one is to just remember that that first Thanksgiving was held in the context of the majority of people starving or dying of disease among the English who came across. And then, of course, disease spreading among the Native Americans who welcomed them. So it was always, in some sense, a Thanksgiving fraught with difficulty and the like. And also, modern Thanksgiving really sort of dates from a campaign that uh, culminated with Lincoln's adoption of a day of Thanksgiving um, during the Civil War. And so in the midst of bloody uh, carnage, um, you know, the, the nation took up this ritual of giving thanks. So I'm not, I don't know that we can ever sort of hope to have an unadulterated uh, year that we can look back on and say without qualification that we give thanks for all of it. So, Well, I think you've certainly settled that. <laughs> so let's, <laughs> let's talk about what the young and minority voters who helped hold the line against the recent Republican red wave, what strategies progressives can build on to mobilize a Democratic majority in 2024. My understanding is that there were more Republican votes in this midterm than Democratic votes. It's just that more Democrats voted than usual in a midterm. And the Republicans voted in pretty strong numbers in the last couple of elections as well. So the Democrats really need to get more people out, do they not? Yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, I have been saying now for several years, certainly from 2016 onward, that we're in a remarkable period. I mean, 20 years ago, a colleague of mine at the Kennedy School wrote a book called The Vanishing Voter, in which he looked at the trend line of voter participation, not just the young, but of Americans in general. And it was a it was going down, down, down. Uh, and it had been going down since the 1970s. And then suddenly in the late aughts and ever since, just the opposite has happened. Voting participation has gone up, up, up. And in particular, what's noticeable, particularly to the benefit of Democrats, is that it's gone up among young people. It's gone up among recent uh, arrivals in the United States, new citizens, and it's gone uh, up among people of color. And those three groups are together. They're not the majority of the Democratic Party, but their presence and their activity in the Democratic Party is absolutely essential to uh, the party winning uh, where it needs to win. But can the Democrats build on that? I, you know, I, I think they can. I mean, again, I for the number of years, this may sound a little esoteric and academic, but I've been teaching the work of a Yale professor named Stephen Skoranek. Uh, and the idea that there are long presidential cycles. And without going into detail, let me just assert that I think we're in the midst of one of those long turns that happen between uh, these new, these presidential cycles. In uh, the last 75 years, those cycles have been a Roosevelt cycle that lasted from the 30s to the 70s, and then a Reagan cycle that lasted from the 80s up to the near present. And what we're seeing under Biden is the final collapse of a lot of support for that Reagan cycle and the emergence of support for something alternative, although Joe Biden can't seem to quite crystallize what it is that uh, he wants this new era to look like. I think in some sense we can talk about uh, shortly that that may be a greater problem 
than turnout, or it may be directly important for turnout, and we need to discuss it in that light. Well, clearly the Democrats have a problem in 2024. We don't know whether Biden is going to run again. He said that he was going to discuss it over the Christmas holidays with Jill. I think it's more than a family matter. (laughs) It does involve the entire country. (laughs) But that notwithstanding, do you think that if he does decide not to run, whether as Nancy Pelosi suggested in her farewell speech recently, that the Democrats need to turn over the the mantle to a younger generation? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, so here I I have taken the position and I'll take it with you today, which is I'm not going to worry about who's at the top of the ticket in 2024 quite yet. I want a lot more focus on who's going to be running down the line who's going to be running for uh, state office, who's going to be running for municipal office, and who's going to be running to actually staff a reinvigorated Democratic Party. Um, Because, frankly, we can't keep lurching from quadrennial election to quadrennial election with these midterms in between, spending, you know, 15, 20 billion dollars a cycle. It was the last estimate I saw for this, the most recent one was $16 billion. Um, and what we're doing is wearing out the promise of democracy for a lot of people because it has become an industrial process of voter turnout and, and voter allegiance. So I'm, I think that the presidency or who's going to run for the presidency will be solved. I don't know how it will be solved. I don't have a particular candidate that I want to put forward at this point, like everyone else in the media and academics, I can list names and I can list the problems associated with those names. And I just saw today that Gavin Newsom, who was one of those names, is ostensibly withdrawing from consideration, although these are the ways that, in fact, people signal their interest in being (laughs) drafted. So we'll see what it means. I I think that the, the underlying battles are going to be the battles for uh, a major program for uh, who replaces retiring uh, members of the Supreme Court um, and how Biden is able to conduct the American and the Western side of this vicious war in Ukraine over the next couple of years. Well, I'm astounded that there is a Putin caucus in the Republican Party. And that, mm-hmm. you know, since I follow Russian media, they were all giddy about the prospect of a red wave, just as the Republicans were. And mm-hmm. uh, they were counting on it. And mm-hmm. they were expecting that McCarthy's first order of business would be to cut funds to Ukraine. But they're not going away. And, you know, the Marjorie Taylor Greene. So can you figure out what this weird alliance is between this basically fascist state under Putin <laughs> and why the rabid right of the Republican Party are doing his bidding? Well, sure. I mean, I, again, think about the Copperheads in the middle of the Civil War, Northerners who were entirely sympathetic to the South's position, whether it was about uh, states' rights or about slavery or both. And they were present in the Congress throughout the war and were a persistent problem for Lincoln and his administration. And as you know, the re-election campaign of November 1864 was one that Lincoln was not at all sure he was going to win and really could only thank General Sherman's march to the sea in Georgia 
for creating the reversals militarily that gave the North confidence that they would win. So I'm not at all surprised that we've got Americans who identify with the enemies of America. And those enemies in the Civil War, as they are today, are in the Congress. In the 1860s, they tended to be Democrats. In the 2020s, they turn out uh, alarmingly to be mostly Republicans, uh, to, I'm sure, the great chagrin of the ghost of Abraham Lincoln. So that's number one. The, the question about the alliance of the far left and the far right is always an interesting one. Uh, but again, you know, in the 1930s, you saw alliances between Germany and, and the Soviet Union that bespoke, uh, if not agreement ideologically, the recognition that each side had something to gain by cooperating with the other side. And I think that's pretty much what you can expect of this particular uh, seeming alliance that's being forged between ultra-rightists and, uh, and the Russians. The other, of course, is that this is Russia, not the Soviet Union, and Putin is Putin, not Stalin. And he may be an autocrat, but he's in no way committed to the advancement of communism as an antithetical system to capitalism. He is thoroughly embedded in a state capitalist system that has proved enormously lucrative for him, for himself and for his oligarchic allies. So let's turn to domestic politics as this Republican House gets its act together, if indeed it can. There'll be obviously challenges to mm -hmm. McCarthy's leadership. Mm -hmm. But in general, it would seem that the next two years, it's safe to predict it's just going to be miserable, both for McCarthy and for the country, with crazy right. inquiries, Benghazi-like witch hunts, etc. Mm -hmm. is, that, is that going to basically benefit the Democrats? You know, I think it'll benefit the Democrats in the following way, which is that the, the, that the cruelty and the chaos of the House Republicans will, the Democrats are hoping, uh, drive people away from the Republican Party when 2024 comes around, just as I think a lot of Democrats are cynically hopeful that Donald Trump will stay in the race as the Republican candidate, feeling that people have had enough familiarity with Trump that a certain number of them are going to either sit out the camp, uh, sit out the race, uh, or will actually vote for whoever the Democratic alternative is. So I think that this is a start, the start of a period that, from a purely strategic point of view, is one that a lot of Democratic elites are actually excited for because they think that the performance of the Republicans, uh, both from Mar-a-Lago and within the House. Uh, are going to do more damage to the Republicans than they are to the Democrats. But, of course, we shall see. Well, Richard Parker, I thank you so much for joining us here today. Well, it's always good to talk with you, Ian, and I'm always glad to be on board with you. Well, thank you. And again, I've been speaking with Richard Parker, who teaches economics and public policy at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and is a senior fellow at the Shorenstein Center. He's the former managing editor of Ramparts, was the co-founder of Mother Jones magazine and serves on the editorial board of The Nation. And his books include The Myth of the Middle Class and John Kenneth Galbraith, His Life, His Politics, His Economics. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org. 
where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half past nine Who will ever know how much she loved them so That dark night alone in America i